Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given us your son, um, that you were willing to let him come to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you came um, not as one force, but as one um, who came joyfully, um, knowing that you were securing our souls for yourself, reconciling us back to the Father. We pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would animate our hearts, stir our affections to be moved by the gospel. We pray that you would produce in us true repentance, true conviction of faith, and that you would be glorified in the strengthening and the edification of your church. We pray all this in the name of, the, in the name of our Lord Christ. Amen. After two weeks of reprieve, we are resuming our series on the book of Zechariah. And I don't know what you have thought of this series, but for me, it's been, it's been a really fascinating experience because Zechariah is full of confusing images and visions. At times, it's difficult to understand what is even going on. And yet, the writers of the New Testament apparently loved this book. In the cloudy stories of Zechariah, they found clear allusions to Christ. Once they had encountered the substance of Christ, the shadows in Zechariah began to take shape and to make sense to them. Zechariah was drawing pictures of Jesus Christ in the dark. Sometimes it was a more obvious likeness than other times, but the appearance of Christ made it evident that in faith, Zechariah was telling us about something that he himself only vaguely grasped and understood from a distance. We encounter this same dynamic again at play in Zechariah 12, where in verse 10, Zechariah writes about an unidentified man who is pierced through and dies. Who is this man is one of the most perplexing questions when you read Zechariah's prophecy. His identity is of great interest to us, though, because his death is the cause of national mourning. Verse 12 says that the whole land shall mourn, each family by itself. And then it goes through and lists each family. Lately, we have seen such national heartbreak on display in the UK, where people lined up for days just for the chance to visit their monarch's casket. People who had never met the queen wept openly for her. The whole island, the whole world mourned. And this is the sort of reaction that this unidentified man in Zechariah 12 likewise receives, but with one crucial difference. The people who mourn him are also the ones responsible for his death. The people who are mourning Elizabeth's death are not doing so because they are somehow complicit in her death. She was 96 years old. Her death certificate merely listed old age as the cause of her death. But the man in Zechariah 12 was pierced through. Something sinister caused his demise. And the text suggests that the mourners had something to do with it. They were somehow complicit in his untimely and violent end. 
Zechariah 12 suggests this by pointing out that apart from God's provision of a spirit of compassion and supplication, they would otherwise be unmoved. If you look at verse 10, God says that he will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that when they look on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Without this divinely provided gift, the, the mourners wouldn't be mourning. But God gives to a complicit people a spirit of compassion and supplication so that they will mourn this man as one of their own, their own children, firstborn even. That is the spirit of compassion, right? The ability to, to see yourself in another person, to climb into their, the shoes of another, as it were, to feel for them. But if you have been the source of another person's pain, then climbing into their shoes the shoes of the person you have wronged is a particularly difficult thing to do. Standing in their shoes, you have a, a front row seat to your own ugliness and your own sin. And compassion, therefore, calls for penitence. The presence of compassion and a spirit of penitence are divine. They are gifts given to humanity from God. We would rather move on or remain quiet, hoping to escape any blame. But God gives to humanity the ability to see through the eyes of another and to apologize, to admit our great need of help. Verse 10 says that he gives a spirit of compassion, but not just a spirit of compassion, also a spirit of supplication. He softens our hearts and opens our mouths so that we might ask forgiveness from the one whom we have pierced through and offended. The ability to grieve is a gift from God, for it leads to salvation. This is what God seeks by showing us our sin. He seeks godly grief that issues forth in penitence and ultimately leads to salvation. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul draws a distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. He writes that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings with it no regret, but worldly grief produces death. The difference between godly grief and worldly grief is the forgiveness of God that's promised to the penitent. Godly grief has a, a goal towards which to strive, whereas worldly grief has no end. Jesus Christ stands with his arms still held open to the godly even when they sin. And it's that gesture of love and forgiveness that motivates them in their grief to repent, to amend their lives. Paul applauds the godly in, first, in 2 Corinthians for the way they conduct themselves in their grief. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What, what eagerness to, to clear yourselves what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. The godly are grieved by their sin. But with the prospect of forgiveness on the horizon, with Christ, with his arms held open, they are motivated to penitence, to clear their name, 
to pursue, to pursue Christ with greater effort. In Zechariah 12, God gives humanity a spirit of compassion and supplication so that they might experience this kind of godly grief that issues forth in penitence and produces salvation. And the cause of this grief is the piercing of this mysterious man in verse 10. God helps the guilty to grieve those things they did to contribute to his demise, and he opens their mouths as they mourn in order to ask for forgiveness. And this man, whoever he is, will be for them a source of forgiveness and cleansing. In the first verse of chapter 13, Zechariah goes on to say that at the same time that God gives the guilty a spirit of compassion and supplication, he will also open up a fountain that cleanses away all sin and impurity. The picture here is a, a fountain where the, the penitent, moved by their sorrow, can come and wash away their sin. This fountain is a place where guilt is forgiven and life restored. And in Zechariah 12, this fountain and the man who was pierced are separate. But the author of John's gospel saw them come together. When on the cross, the side of Jesus was pierced, and from his side poured out water and blood like a fountain under which a sinner might have their sin and their guilt washed away. No other gospel mentions the piercing of Jesus' side. No other gospel mentions the blood and the water flowing out of him. Unsurprisingly then, no other gospel points back to the death of Jesus as the explicit fulfillment of the unnamed man in Zechariah 12. It is John's gospel alone that does this because he is connecting the fountain of forgiveness with the man who is pierced. And why was he pierced, we might ask? It was for our sin. To quote another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We were complicit in our, in, in our rebellion. We have been complicit in our jealousy. We have been complicit in our sloth. We have been complicit in our gluttony. We have been complicit in our, our lust, our ingratitude, our anger, our gossip, our hatred, our scoffing. We were complicit in the piercing through of our Savior and our God. And yet from his side flows a fountain in which we may be forgiven. On our account, he died. And yet, even in his death, he offers forgiveness. As we look upon this pierced one, he is calling us to mourn. Because in the humility of our grief, we will find salvation. He wants to forgive us. Mourning the death of this pierced one puts us in a position to receive his grace and his healing. The letter of James echoes Zechariah's instructions about how to approach God in even more explicit terms in Zechariah. James 4 writes, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He exalts the lowly and he lifts up the humble. In order to approach God, you must be willing to admit your complicity in his death. You must approach him in contrition. May the Lord Jesus Christ give you a spirit of compassion so that you may view yourself through his eyes. You were the one who he interceded for from the cross. It was for you that he asked, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. If you recognize your complicity, may our Lord Jesus Christ also give you a spirit of supplication to cry out, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. That admission of guilt is counterintuitively the words of life. For the sinner who confesses their guilt and their need of Christ will find themselves washed clean and they will find themselves under the fountain that sprang from his side, a fountain of blood that cleanses all who are plunged into it. The 18th century English poet William Cowper wrote a hymn called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood It's a gruesome title, sounding more like the latest Quentin Tarantino film, but the words are pure gospel. It goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away, and there may I, Though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Can you confess yourself as vile as the thief who was crucified next to Christ? The gospel requires you to do so, not to rub your nose in your shame, but to show you how much you are loved despite your shame, despite your guilt. It puts you in a position with a fountain flowing from Christ's side might pour down on you, might cleanse you as you look up to your Savior with his arms stretched wide to embrace you even as he takes his last breath on your account. If you search Zechariah 12, you will find Jesus there. He is the pierced one. He is also the fountain of forgiveness. He's not just a reminder of our guilt. He is the source of our healing. The author of John's gospel saw this, and may you see it as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.